0: Hello, and welcome to the Whale Hunting Podcast, where we shine a light into hidden worlds of money and power every week. I'm Bradley Hope, and this week I'm joined by Heidi Blake, an investigative journalist at The New Yorker, and author, and now creator of a new podcast, The Runaway Princesses. Welcome, Heidi.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Maybe you could just start us off with a little background. I know you were a crack investigative reporter in the UK before you joined The New Yorker. Maybe you could just fill us in a little bit on your journalism background.
1: Sure, so I uh, I started out in journalism at the Daily Telegraph where I, I joined the graduate training scheme. And then I kind of arrived at the newspaper right in the middle of this huge investigative story back in 2009, which was the MPs expenses scandal. Like the investigations team at the Telegraph had got hold of this huge tranche of, um, of expenses claims by MPs in the UK and were sifting through them and finding the most appalling and egregious abuses kind of ranging from really outrageous fraud to, petty claims for things like packets of crisps, or one MP had claimed for um, a duck house for the moat at his castle. And it was kind of this great schooling in the light and shade of investigative journalism, like a story that was both kind of outrageous and and funny um, and full of just amazing detail. And I I just got totally obsessed with, with the kind of process of trawling through those documents. I was only really helping out, but it was just amazing to be there. And so I then worked on the investigations team at the Telegraph and then moved over to join the Sunday Times Insight team. And I worked there for uh, several years um, as as an investigative journalist. And then I went to Buzzfeed in 2015 and set up an investigations team in the UK, working on um, all sorts of big stories, including a big transatlantic investigation into Russian assassinations in the United Kingdom, which was an amazing team effort and great to be part of. And then I joined The New Yorker in 2022.
0: Excellent. And you know, I think at this point, whenever a reporter has done so many different kinds of projects like that, they tend to kind of understand how it is they do things or kind of like, what's the the secret weapon that you might have, or even just the style? I mean, at this point, have you sort of figured that out, I guess?
1: That is a great question. I think I'm I'm a huge nerd for documents. I think my happy place as a reporter is to get hold of a gigantic trove of files and then have that as a kind of backbone of a story to sift through and piece together what happened and who to talk to and kind of where the secrets are buried. Most of the, the really big stories I've done have kind of started off with getting hold of a a great big trove of documents. And then of course, from there you go and you find people and you knock on doors and you talk to people and you unravel the the kind of secrets at the heart of the story, but yeah, having that, having that nose for a paper trail, I think is probably the main thing.
0: Um, let's talk a little bit more about the New Yorker article and the podcast. So obviously this is the story of this princess who tried to run away more than once and was, you know, I won't give away the end. But how did you come onto that story originally? And and what has that reporting process been like? I mean, is there some little insight you can give us into the kind of the origin of that story?
1: Yeah, that story was an interesting one, because I I first jotted down the name of of Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum, who is the ruler of Dubai, um, about six years ago. And it was when I was still at uh, BuzzFeed News and I was working on this investigation into Russian assassinations in the UK and I was talking with a police source about at times when his investigations had been curtailed for political reasons because that was something that we were seeing a lot with these suspected Russian hits that investigations seemed to be being shut down because the government didn't really want to to know if the Russian state was carrying out um, hits on British soil and this police detective told me this kind of thing was really rare that kind of political meddling um, There was one case he'd experienced where he'd been investigating a Russian, a suspected Russian murder, and and that case had been shut down. And the only other time he'd known anything like that happen was in this case involving the ruler of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed. And so he told me this story, which was kind of tangential to the investigation I was I was working on at the time. But he told me that in around 2000, a sex worker had escaped from a huge mansion um, in Surrey, just outside London, which is owned by Sheikh Mohammed. And she'd gone to the police and told them that she'd been held captive for several days in this property and repeatedly raped by a man who she said was a member of the Dubai royal family. And the police had then established that this property is owned by Sheikh Mohammed. And so the the detective I was talk, talking to told me he'd set out to try and investigate this. But when he was on his way to, to try to start digging into it, he got a call from head office telling him to stand down and that this wasn't to be looked into any further, and that the whole matter... Had been dealt with government to government, and in his words, the whole thing had been swept away. And so I was, I mean, that was really striking. It's so rare to hear a police officer actually saying, This is the moment when my investigation was squelched for political reasons. I was fascinated and, and horrified by it, but it was it wasn't germane to the the thing I was working on at the time, so I kind of just filed that away in my notebook. And then it was the following year that I heard that there was this this fresh story of another woman who'd run away from Sheikh Mohammed. And this time it was his own daughter, it was sheik Latifah Al-Latifa, who had attempted to escape Dubai by sea and then being violently captured and returned to Dubai by her father. And it then turned out that she was the, the first in a succession of princesses who tried to run away from Sheikh Mohammed. And what struck me as I kind of watched from afar was that every time this happened, it seemed like world leaders and particularly Western governments kind of just were very willing to look the other way and pretend that these women were not desperately seeking escape and seeking sanctuary. And so I kind of, w- I wanted to know what was going on. And 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 that was why when I arrived at the New Yorker in 2022, I thought I wanted to make that my first story.
0: Yeah, it's such an amazing story. You know, obviously the, the, the greatest praise you can receive as a magazine writer, I would imagine, is that I read it from the beginning to the end. You know, I didn't stop at any point. <laughs> and also, that is I, what we're going for. I was also kind of familiar with the story. So it's one of those things where you're kind of familiar with what kind of bubbled up publicly. But what I realized was I had absolutely no idea about the story at all until I read it. Why do you think it is that governments are so willing to sweep things under the rug for somebody like that? I mean, why is it so important to them it just seems so outrageous to hear it like that from a police officer. You know, it kind of reminds you of like, on a much lesser degree, but the story of journalists who feel like they were censored, their stories were censored for some higher purpose. But you, you actually don't hear that so often, even though maybe in the in the public perception it happens all the time. I think these are the stories right, in a way right. that are the most important stories of all are the ones that get killed and the most important crimes are the ones that get covered up.
1: Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I imagine it's it's similar for you as an investigative reporter that like the, the, the stories that really start to get your interest are the ones where you can see someone is trying to keep this under wraps. And as soon as there's a cover up, you really, really want to get to the bottom of that, because that, that's where the biggest secrets are obviously are buried. Um and where the kind of the biggest vested interests, I guess, are at play. You know, this is a story about a man Sheikh Mohammed, who is in in his own right, one of the world's richest people. He's the UK's biggest private landowner. He's the owner of the, the world's biggest thoroughbred horse racing team. And as this huge figure in in global horse racing, he'd earned a a valuable friendship with Queen Elizabeth, who was herself an enormous fan of the sport. And He gifted her a number of thoroughbred racehorses. He sat with her in the Royal Box at Ascot. He even rode with her at the head of the Royal Procession. He was very, very close with her. And actually, one of the things the detective who first told me about this case had said was that when he was told to stand down and stop investigating, he'd said, that this has all been made to go away. It's been dealt with government to government and Her Majesty's favourite sport will continue in this country. So there's this suggestion that, you know, that there's, there's an effort there to try to, to try to mollify somebody who is clearly connected at the highest levels of British society. I mean, I don't suggest for a moment that anyone at, at, at Surrey Police called the Queen and said, do you want us to make this go away, ma'am? You know, I, I don't think she would have been involved in that decision-making. But there's this kind of interesting... Culture of deference, I think, in British law enforcement, where potentially even the officers in, you know, at a higher level had kind of made that call themselves that this would have been what their superiors might have wanted. I mean, the, the suggestion was that this had come down following some discussions with government and... There appeared at every turn in this story because, you know, this, this then turned out to be the first in a whole sequence of events where women had tried to escape from Sheikh Mohammed and their stories had been ignored by law enforcement and by the, the authorities, including two royal women who had been kidnapped in broad daylight from British soil, kind of from right under the noses of the British police. And this, this had been allowed to go ahead. Um, and it really seemed to be, you know, the more I spoke with officials in the Foreign Office, officials in law enforcement, a story of a real unwillingness to antagonize somebody who is a, a key British ally and a major investor in, in the British economy. You know, the, the one of the detectives I spoke to said to me, it's really galling that we allow economic interests to ride roughshod over what's right. But basically, as long as if you're a rich and powerful enough person, you can break any law you like in this country and get away with it.
0: Yeah, I think what's, what's kind of crazy for me is that the actual economic loss. So let's say that somebody in the family was prosecuted, and then they decided to punish the UK by selling all of their property and stopping business, it just seems kind of ridiculous. But also, I wonder, like, as a percentage of the economy, would it be meaningful? Would it be point zero 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 one percent of the economy? You know, it's it's amazing what government officials think is worth doing to preserve that I, I don't actually think there's something to preserve in an actual real way, you know? It's almost more about friendship or like connections between these people than it is about the actual economy, right?
1: I I do agree with you. I think, you know, I think a lot of it is a kind of reflexive unwillingness to to rock the boat with Britain's allies and that maybe it's not always that rational because I was determined to get to the bottom of this. And I I kept talking to former government ministers, civil servants, senior police officers, people at kind of every level of this about what did you, what were you worried about? What did you think was going to happen here if you really investigated this thoroughly, if you stood in the way of these women being kidnapped? And it wasn't anything very tangible. But I think the the broad concern was that there's a sort of certain amount of political capital that a government holds in any relationship and that you know there are a number of strategic interests here and they didn't want to use those chips on the individual case of some princess when they could kind of write that off as a family matter and you know there are Many tens of thousands of British expats living in Dubai. There are all kinds of commercial and business interested deals being done. There are innumerable situations where they may want to have cards to play and they don't want to they don't want to play them on a case that they just consider to be individual, private, a family matter, and not that interesting. And that's one way of looking at this. I mean, it's similar to, to when I was investigating the suspected Russian assassinations. You know, there was a a view among senior law enforcement officials and and, and intelligence officials that I spoke to that look. A lot of these guys have fallen foul of the Kremlin, they've played a risky game, they lost, and we're not gonna risk British interests for these individual guys who actually, a lot of them are pretty unsavoury characters anyway. I guess the point is that what's at stake here are, are really important principles of the rule of law and human rights and you know that, that if you start to say, well, it doesn't really matter and let's look away and let's make an exception in this case because there are bigger interests here, that's a very slippery slope to a, to a very bad place.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's it's so weird, too, because I feel like if there was, like, a tech billionaire who did this, there would be no way for them to buy their way out of it, you know? If there was, like, a, a European head of state did this, I think it would just become a scandal and it would not get covered up. The same way, for some reason, there's this weird thing with, like... Middle Eastern royals or something. I don't know. Just that's just my hunch, but I don't maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe everyone can buy their way out of trouble, you know?
1: I think that there's something in that. And a lot of the yeah, a lot of the officials I spoke to were kind of uneasy about the fact that there seemed to be something particular that went on in, in our, our dealings with Gulf royals. And I think that maybe some of that is that there's a kind of willingness to just write these problems off as being cultural differences. And, you know, this is the way things are done in the Middle East and we really ought not to to judge or to interfere. I think that's a patronising and pejorative attitude and it actually ignores the rights of women in these countries and sort of treats them as being lesser than the rights of women in, in the West um, somehow. And actually you have in in Princess Latifa and in her sister and in her aunt and in other royal women who tried to escape, strong women who are standing up for their rights, who are saying, listen to us, hear our voices, take us seriously. You know, Latifa, when she was captured aboard a yacht in, in international waters, was screaming that she wanted asylum and she didn't want to go back to Dubai. And those cries are ignored on the basis that these things can just be treated as as a private family matter because this is the Middle East and it's not our place to interfere. And I, I think that that's very wrongheaded.
0: Yeah, that, maybe we could talk about that a little bit, too. There is obviously a very patriarchal element to this whole story, too, where all these different countries, the the head of Dubai, the, the Indian authorities, the British authorities are sort of saying you can handle the women problem or there's something crazy about it, the way that they don't value the voice of women in the story.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. It was interesting in the case of uh, Princess Shamsa, who is Latifa's uh, older sister, who herself made an attempt to run away in the UK in, in the year 2000 and then was kidnapped by her father's men from the streets of Cambridge and forcibly returned to Dubai, where she was held and imprisoned for decades and kept drugged and under constant guard. And Shamsa made a number of very spirited efforts to report her own kidnap to the British police, risking her life to do so. And, and I spoke at length with the detective who picked up and investigated her case, which was ultimately shut down. And it was interesting to hear him kind of figuring out how to deal with this, because he kept saying, you know, that he had daughters and that they could be, in his words, stroppy and difficult, and you know she was a, she was in her late teens. She was eighteen or nineteen, and you know this is a difficult time for families. And you could hear the sort of patriarchal tone, I guess, of those deliberations. The fact was, this was an adult woman who had decided she didn't want to be controlled anymore and had fled and was trying to seek asylum in the UK. Um, who was kidnapped forcibly and violently, and has has been imprisoned ever since, not having committed any crime, but you know because she tried to make a bid for her freedom um and this this detective had made efforts to investigate in the end um but you know had also stood down pretty meekly when the government had come in and and shut down that investigation i found it depressing how often people who had the power to help uh and really to intervene kind of fell away and were just so easily dissuaded from doing so and then the, the other kind of fascinating thing in this story is that there's this amazing confederacy of incredibly brave women at the heart of it who banded together to help each other you know Latifa's escape attempts were all to try to seek help for her sister who'd been imprisoned following her own effort to flee and then there was this amazing group of maids and attendants who had helped these women you know one one of Shamsa's prison attendants had helped her by smuggling notes out of out of the prison in, in her hair to ferry them back to Latifa so Latifa could get word to the police and to lawyers who they were working with You know, Latifa herself had managed to enlist when she was later imprisoned, a maid who smuggled a a cell phone into her jail cell so that she could stay in contact with the outside world. Then there's this amazing group of martial arts instructors in Dubai who get involved in Latifa's escape attempt. And it's this kind of extraordinary phenomenon where, you know, world powers have singularly failed to help. They're not stepping in, you know, even when these princesses are actually getting word to the police and saying, help us, we've been kidnapped, the cops are ignoring it. And then you have this kind of motley crew of Have-Go heroes who actually don't have any power and are taking enormous risks to get involved in and try to help, but who feel compelled to do so for reasons of conscience. And so I found that redeeming in all of this, I suppose.
0: Yeah, that is true. That's some of those characters are really amazing, very inspiring and put themselves at great risk because obviously, you know, if you were to end up in a Dubai prison for some kind of a charge, it's not necessarily a due process system over there. Absolutely. With, with Princess Latifa in particular and her sister, what exactly was the life that they were condemned to that they were so keen to escape? So why were they so motivated to escape in the first place? Well,
1: as I as I went about reporting all of this, it wasn't possible to speak with them directly, but one of the amazing things about this story, and I, I mentioned, you know, kind of having this love of a huge pile of documents, was I was able to get hold of and piece together just this amazing trove of Latifa's writings, and some of Shams' as well, letters, text messages, audio messages, video files, um, diaries, that she'd shared with friends over the course of about a decade and they really painted an extraordinarily detailed picture of the life that she was trying to escape um, right back to childhood and so Latifa was born to one of Sheikh Mohammed's six wives but she and her brother had been removed from their natural mother at birth and given as gifts to Sheikh Mohammed's childless sister so they had grown up for the first 10 years of their lives not knowing who their what their real parentage was, and had described growing up in her aunt's palace, um, thinking that this woman was her mother, among dozens of other stray children that her aunt seemed to be almost collecting. She described how the children were kept locked in their rooms and not allowed out, not allowed to play, except that occasionally uh, a team of photographers would be brought in, and Latif would be taken out and dressed up in kind of frilly dresses and given pets and toys to play with while the photographers took pictures. And then when the photo session was over this would all be removed and she'd be sent back to her room and locked away again. And, you know, she talked about her aunt sometimes being cruel. There's an occasion where she described this woman breaking into the room, where for and other children were being held and beating them all so badly that their bodies were left covered in bruises and, and welts. And she re- she wrote really movingly of spending hours at the window, just watching, people going by outside and imagining flying a kite so big that it would carry her up into the sky. And so right from an early age, you know, she's got these fantasies of escape, and flight and freedom. And then as, you know, she she ultimately discovered the truth, you know, this, this woman was not really her mother, um, and that her mother was another woman who she had occasionally been allowed to visit very rarely, uh, who she had believed was her aunt. And she discovered that Shamza uh, her, was her older sister, and it was actually Shamza who had gone and had argued for Latifa to be allowed to go home and rejoin her birth family. And so she did when she was ten, and became incredibly close with Shamza. But as they got older and sort of matured towards womanhood, their lives became more and more constrained, and Shamza particularly began to to clash with their father with Sheikh Mohammed over his unwillingness to allow them to study or to drive and you know the, the requirement that they wear the abaya and cover themselves that's when things started to sort of really turn very very sour. Um, Latifa describes an occasion when Sheikh Mohammed repeatedly punched Shamsa in the head for interrupting him. Um, Shamza wrote to family members that she was feeling so trapped that she was contemplating suicide And that was the point at which she decided that rather than kill herself, that she would attempt to escape. So that was when Shamsa first tried to flee on this trip to England. And that was where it all began really, because it was Shamsa's escape attempt and then her capture and imprisonment under sedation in in the palace that then led Latifa to repeatedly try to escape herself in order to try to get help for her.
0: It's really also just such a painful reality about this family, because obviously Dubai presents itself as this modern metropolis with women having a much better share of rights than in other countries in the Middle East, for example. But it sounds like in the actual royal household, they just didn't want women to do to be anything other than what they wanted them to be.
1: Yeah, and it's a a kind of paradox because Sheikh Mohammed really presents himself as a champion of women's rights, you know, he, he talks about women as being the soul and spirit of Dubai. And he talks about, you know, wanting to remove all the hurdles that women face in society. And he's sort of positioned himself as a, as a really progressive leader on women's rights in the region. But actually the reality for the women in his family is very different. And even though publicly, royal women are sort of paraded and, you know, as, as kind of emblems of Sheikh Mohammed's efforts to promote women's rights. in in lots of ways publicly actually behind the scenes, their lives are very, very constrained. And so it's this kind of odd dual position that they occupy. When I talked to experts about that, they sort of described it to me, One in particular described it to me as a kind of performative patriarchy, that if you're an absolute ruler like Sheikh Mohammed, you need to demonstrate to your people that you maintain total control over your subjects and therefore over your particularly female relatives, And so acts of public disobedience by women in your family have to be swiftly crushed. And even though, you know, that then puts him in a difficult position, you would think, with his Western allies, these kinds of very draconian acts towards adult women, you would think might be viewed unfavourably. Actually, as it transpires, he's, he's really been able to get away with it to a quite extraordinary extent on the world stage.
0: I mean, it also, even though this is kind of abstract, it really reveals... A deep weakness in that kind of government, this sort of absolute monarchy, where there's this unaccountable person at the top, and that's why injustices can happen because ultimately there is no rule of law. There's just the rule of the sheikh, and you know I think that really goes to the heart of of a kind of fragility of this style of government. I
1: think I think you're right, and I think because of this precarious illusion of absolute power. That's why these acts of disobedience have to be so decisively crushed, um, because they are a real political threat.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the other kind of twists of the story is that um, L- Latifa has stopped sending those messages now to her friends. That must have been kind of a finale of your of your piece. It, it must have been a, a difficult thing to process as well. I mean, I'm sure you can understand to some extent, but. Could you just explain a little bit more about how you've sort of feel about the story now, looking back on it, you know, having written the story and now now putting the podcast out? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I guess, you know, I, I started looking into this after Lativa had stopped communicating with her supporters. And and I'd followed the story, you know, as many of us had kind of from afar. We We'd read about the fact that the princess Latifa had been captured. And then there was, a, there was a moment where her supporters released videos of her from inside her prison villa saying that she was being held hostage. And then there was this kind of odd resolution where suddenly a bunch of photos of Latifa appeared on social media and statements were released in her name saying that she was free and living exactly as she wanted and that she no longer wanted anybody to campaign for her. And, I struggled to make sense of that from the outside and so had wanted to try and understand what had happened and to go and speak with the supporters who'd been in touch with her and and understand this kind of this gap that is suddenly left for them where this she has just vanished and they were in daily contact and and now she's just disappeared and they've heard nothing from her at all. You know, what was clear when I then was able to read through thousands and thousands of messages that she'd sent from inside her prison villa was you know right up to the moment where she lost contact. She had first of all been so resolute that she would never give up under any circumstances. And you know, she wrote to her supporters again and again, there is no situation in which I will ever accept living here in Dubai. It, for me, it's death or freedom, nothing in between. You know, she was absolutely dauntless about that. But then, after years of imprisonment, really suffering awfully at the hands of her father's guards, who were inflicting all kinds of psychological techniques to try to break her down. You saw that resolve gradually crumbling away and you saw her begin to contemplate that maybe she would have to make some arrangement with her father, that she just couldn't bear to stay in prison any longer. She felt she was dying a very slow death by suffocation was something she wrote. And she would then oscillate between saying maybe that she just needed to give up and, and then saying, I know I, I never will. I absolutely refuse to surrender. And so it was sort of clear to me that ultimately Latifa's willpower had just given way. You know, she'd been placed under such extraordinary duress for so many years. And it, you know, this, this escape had been decades in the planning. I mean, the spirit it must've taken against all of the odds, to plan something like that and to pull something like that off. And then ultimately to be captured and to be dragged back and to realize that wherever you are in the world, even in international waters, on a US flagged boat, as she was that your father's men can just come and drag you away and no one will help you. No one's coming to get you. I think ultimately, she just couldn't do it anymore. And so it was an interesting challenge for me because, you know, I I sort of wasn't able to speak with her directly and had to kind of take a view on the fact that these statements were being released ostensibly in her name saying that she didn't want any advocacy on her behalf anymore. But ultimately I felt, you know, I had a decade's worth of correspondence where her intentions were very clear. She wanted the world to know what had happened to her. And it felt like there was a sort of obligation to that person to carry through what she had wanted, which was for the world to understand her story and understand the suffering that had been inflicted upon her. You know, she wrote, she would not allow decades of dehumanization and torture that she'd suffered to be wiped away. And so I think that being able to write about her story and now to to make this podcast where we've been able to use so many of the extraordinary audio recordings that Latifa made during her escape and then inside prison where she just talks so movingly about her experience is a, a testament to the spirit of this woman who tried so hard to secure freedom for herself and her sister.
0: And I guess we won't be able to ever know, at least in the near term, what she actually thinks. But, you know, reading your story, listening to the podcast, you you have to think that she probably or she could secretly be very glad that you wrote the story <laughs> because, you know, even if she can't cooperate because of whatever deal she's made, giving up her public advocacy for some degree of freedom for herself and her sister or maybe others, but at the same time, I feel like that fiery spirit probably is there somewhere inside, at least still. But that's just my speculation.
1: You have to hope so that it's yeah that it hasn't been completely extinguished. I know that Latifah is is a private person and wouldn't have chosen for any of this to be in the public domain, but also that she was willing to make these records and make these recordings and did so you know with the intention that they would ultimately be released because she wanted the world to know this story and, and she wrote about hoping that. It would give hope and resolve to other women in the middle east who were also oppressed in the way she and her family members had been and so i hope that yeah as you say that there's a part of her that is glad that her story is out
0: there There, there's no doubt that um you have a you know a sort of document mentality you know to your projects to kind of give yourself a foothold onto a story and to find all the details but I think one of the—reading the story, one of the things that really stood out to me was your ability to get things on the record. And that is such a difficult thing with a story like this because people fear retaliation, legal risk, even perhaps their personal security risk. When I saw that you had named those drivers on the record, among others, I was so impressed. Could you talk a little bit about that process? That's kind of the craft, a little bit of of journalism, but— I think people would really be interested in that.
1: I mean, I was also kind of astonished and, and impressed that the drivers were prepared to talk with me as openly as they did about what they'd been a kind of a party to. Um, so these are drivers who I kind of tracked down when I was trying to dig more into this allegation that had been made to me by the police detective I mentioned earlier, um, who who talked about a sex worker having escaped um, Sheikh Mohammed's mansion and having gone to the police to say that she'd been abused and, and raped. She had told the police that she'd been taken there, picked up in London and taken there by a chauffeur originally. And so I wondered, were there other chauffeurs who you know, had witnessed similar things, who'd, be, who'd been part of similar things? And so I started reaching out to former drivers who'd worked for the company Sheikh Mohammed uses to employ domestic staff in the UK. And the first one I got hold of had worked for Sheikh Mohammed for 17 years, a guy called Juri Sinabad. And when I spoke to him on the phone before I'd even had a chance to ask him about this, you know, I just was, I just sort of said, what was it like working for Sheikh Mohammed? And he just, it just all came tumbling out and he started talking about how he had to bring carloads of women night after night from the Carton Tower Hotel in London, which is owned by Sheikh Mohammed back to his various residences in the UK for the use of, of him and his entourage. And that some of them would leave bruised, beaten, weeping, terribly distressed. And he was then able to introduce me to other drivers. And I then sort of found other bodyguards, other drivers, other members of staff who corroborated what they were saying. You know, some of them didn't want to talk publicly, but but actually there were, I think it was three who spoke to me on the record in a lot of detail. And I think that's incredibly brave. And it was kind of really fascinating to sit with these men who had given decades of their lives to working for this very, very rich and powerful person. And who were all older guys now, and um, kind of sitting with them in pubs and cafes as they grappled with what they'd done and what they'd seen and the moral implications of it. And I think it was painful for them. One or two of them didn't, particularly see what was wrong with it um but there were you know several of these guys were really struggling with their consciences and really wanted to speak about this because I think there was a sense of sort of absolution about it perhaps talking about it and and getting it off their chests
0: yeah I think that makes a lot of sense there is this kind of wonderful thing that happens in journalism sometimes a lot of it is struggle and frustration but every now and then you call someone and they say to you I've been waiting for you to call you know, I've just yeah. been waiting for you to call. I didn't know who was going to call, but I knew someday somebody was going to call and ask this question and I've been waiting for that moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's always such a such a jackpot. Hard to find those people for sure. But that definitely seemed to be the case with these drivers that they're, these were ordinary guys, low paid guys, fathers, grandfathers, kind of decent people who'd been sucked into something very sinister and also who'd been somewhat dazzled by you know the glitz and the wealth I remember sitting in a pub with a couple of them and them talking about you know Sheikh Mohammed's a he's a nice guy right like he'd you know they called him Sheikh Mo um, and they talked about he'd always remember your name and he'd always smile at you and you know a couple of them were saying that he'd invite you in after he'd finished his meal and they were allowed to eat the leftovers of the royal dinner so they'd been somewhat bedazzled by that and then you could see them almost like the scales falling from their eyes as they were talking about it. And and Juro who was there said, no, we're not children to be fooled by this. This is all to cover the nasty part of the character. Look, look, look at these women, look at these girls, look what they did to them. And you could just see them kind of grappling with that. You know, I think we will, it's it's no big secret that wealth and power has this extraordinary gravitational pull and, and being in its orbit kind of makes people cross boundaries and do things that they, would not do in their own lives and and then at the end of it all they these guys are no longer working there they're all retired on very low pensions and they're wondering what the hell was I part of you know and and those are the people i think who start to be ready to talk
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense last question for you you know sometimes when you write a story people come out of the woodwork people saying oh why didn't you call me you know for the story have you had a kind of influx of tips and did you get a sense that this is a much bigger problem than you had maybe initially thought from the original story?
1: Yeah there certainly are other other tips and other sources who who I'm aware of who've come forward and I think there are dimensions of this story that, that, that are sort of somewhat unexplored and that there's more work to be done and I do think the problem of the abuse of women who are trafficked for sex into the Gulf is is a major problem and something that I'm certainly um, very aware of and very interested in. And if anyone is listening to this and has any knowledge of that, I would love to hear from you because I think it's a big unexplored story.
0: And what's your email address, Heidi, so they can contact you?
1: It is Heidi underscore Blake at com.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us and we're excited to listen to the rest of the podcast and maybe there's more to come in the future.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure chatting.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks to Heidi for joining us. You can listen to the Runaway Princesses in your favorite podcast app, where there are new episodes coming soon. The best way to stay up to date with whale hunting is to hit follow wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can also subscribe to the Whale Hunting newsletter for updates on the shadowy lives of the powerful and ultra-wealthy at whalehunting.projectbrazen.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for more.